You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. And today we are going to take a look at a case that comes out of Penn State University. Apparently, I just have a thing for Penn State cases because I also covered the case of Cindy Song. So we are Penn State. Okay, so um, this case is the case of Betsy Ardsma. And I apologize if I am pronouncing that name incorrectly. That's how I heard it on some other podcasts. Uh, But Betsy was born in Holland, Michigan in 1947. She was the second of four children. Her father, Richard, was a sales tax auditor. And her mother, Esther, was a housewife. She graduated high school in 1965. And she graduated with honors from her high school. She was said at that time to have been showing a desire to help out the underprivileged and less fortunate. After high school, she enrolled in Hope College, which was apparently a very strict uh, religious college. And she kind of found out that that wasn't really her jam. And she eventually transferred to the University of Michigan, where she graduated with a bachelor's degree after studying English and art. When she was at the University of Michigan, she met another student who became her boyfriend. His name is David Wright. So after graduation, she initially wanted to go join the Peace Corps, but David was planning on going to Penn State Hershey to continue his education as a pre-med student. So she decided instead to enroll at Penn State's main campus in State College, PA. Um, Basically, he told her that he couldn't promise that he would remain faithful if she went overseas and they were separated. So she decided to stay in the state and she went to Pennsylvania with him and then attended the main campus of the college he was getting his master's in. You said that he was going to the Hershey location. So did he Mm -hmm. decide then to go to main campus? No. So he was doing um, medical something or other. So it was pre-med of some sort. He's actually now he's a kidney specialist, I believe. Um, And so he at that time, they did all of the medical studies in Hershey um, where the hospital is. So they had all of the um, master's level and then doctorate level medical students in Hershey because of the Milton S. Hershey Center, Um, which I listened to another podcast that was talking about this, and it was actually two Penn State students, and they made the comment about, you know, he was at Milton S. Hershey Medical Center, and they Mm -hmm. were like, and that's just too many words, so we just called it Penn State Hershey. I was like, well, okay, that's fair. I was going to say, we call it HMC, like when we take patients yeah. there on the ambulance or Hershey or... Yeah. And I always think of Penn State Hershey just as the hospital. It's like, that's... No. Oh, like when I say I had my surgery, like it was at Penn State Hershey. I don't... You don't think, think about, of the... 
the college part of it, that's, like that it is actually a learning <laughs> school. Right. I don't think about the one that's not that far from my house. Um, so anyway, she chose to go for her master's. She was pursuing a master's in English from the main campus, and she would spend her weekends going to see David. She would hop on the bus station in State College and go to Harrisburg, and he would pick her up, and then she would spend the weekends in Hershey with him. So around... Thanksgiving, she was starting to feel some stress from her coursework. This was her first semester of grad school, and she needed a break, needed a getaway. So over Thanksgiving break, she went to Hershey, and she was with David for Thanksgiving Day, and then she got on a bus that evening to come back to campus so that she could meet with some professors and get a start on a paper she was working on um, the next day, which seems kind of weird to me because it would have been, you know, fall break or Thanksgiving break. So it's odd to me that there were professors on campus that she was able to set up meetings with. Um, maybe that's just a big college thing, but at my school, like we, if it was a break, we didn't meet with teachers over that time. Um, but that was her plan. So she went back to campus Thanksgiving night, um, at Penn state, she lived in Atherton hall, which I think is the same dorm that we talked about Cindy's song, um, living in or walking to, I forget, but I think Atherton hall was involved in her story as well. There's no connection. It's just, um, she wasn't really involved in many campus activities because she spent her free time, uh, going back and forth to Hershey. So they were dating. She and David had been dating for over a year and they were starting to talk about marriage. Um, David even made a comment that they weren't engaged yet, but he was planning on giving her a ring for Christmas. So she gets back Thanksgiving night and the next day she just started going about her day, uh, trying to get work done and meeting with one of her professors. Uh, she went to the library to work on something for this paper, then met with the professor, and then she told him that she was going to go to the stack building in the library, which they just called it the stacks, um, to do a little bit more research. Um, she had gone in on level three and set her stuff down in a study cube, and she perused the card catalog to find the resource that she needed, and then she went down to level two. Um, so now level three is level one and level two is basement, um, which is kind of how like my college's library was. The floor that you walked in on wasn't really the ground floor. So you kind of walked in on level two. So it was higher numbers, but it was really like ground level and then below level. She walked into the area where she needed to find her resource around 430. In less than an hour, she would be dead. Obviously, we don't know exactly what happened or this wouldn't be a cold case. We wouldn't be talking about it. Um, but we do know a couple of things. So we do know that on November 28th, 1969, Betsy Ardsma was stabbed fatally between two shelves of books and a young man was seen running away from the scene after a metallic crash occurred. Um, I'm assuming metallic crash is just like metal bookshelves. 
kind of sounds to me like dropping spoons, but this is bookshelves. What about one of those carts where you like put them back on the shelf? Oh yeah, Maybe he that would make sense too. What I was thinking of, yeah, that would make sense yeah. too. Um, because fr- and I'll get into it a little bit more too. But from the description, it doesn't seem like you know she knocked a bunch of shelves over, like some some books fell. But I wouldn't think that would make metallic noise. But if there was something like that nearby, that would make sense. Uh, so it was discovered that she had been stabbed once through the left side of the breastplate. This one stab sliced her pulmonary artery and pierced the right ventricle of her heart. What's kind of crazy is there were witnesses that saw the guy running away, right? They saw the guy who we're assuming murdered her. Um, But there were two witnesses there that said this person who was running yelled to them, hey, that girl needs help. But he was covering up his right hand and arm as he yelled it. Um, so it kind of seems like maybe it was an accident or I don't know how you accidentally stab someone in the chest, but I don't know, like immediate regret or something that he's saying, Hey, that girl needs help. Well, to me, like, where do you get a knife in a library? So So it seems premeditated. Well, yeah. The wound was one inch by three inches, three inches deep, one inch wide. So it very well could have been a pocket knife also, Um, which, I mean, especially at Penn State, which is an agriculture school, people probably just carry pocket knives. Um, People need to stop stabbing other people with pocket knives. Yeah, seriously, that's been kind of a theme lately. So they didn't find the murder weapon. Right? Well, there is a story. Um, I have it in here somewhere. I'll skip it when we get to it later. But um, somebody did find a knife that was kind of in that size range near the bushes of the recreation hall, which is the direction this person was seen running toward. Um, and apparently it was turned over to police and nothing has come of it. Like They never said another word about it. What type of knife? Was it a pocket knife? I don't think they specifically identified it. I think it was just a knife was found in this area and uh, they gave it to police. Because where else would a knife come from? Like people just dropping knives everywhere. You would assume that it would have to be. The knife fairy. Because of that. It was Edward Scissorhands in the bush. He He was doing landscaping and he lost something that was a bad joke he has scissors for hands not knives <laughs> okay so like i said he apparently ran by concealing his right arm hand whatever and said that a girl needed help those students described the man as being about six foot tall wearing khakis a button-down shirt a tie and a sports jacket along with uh, sneakers, which seems weird to me, like sneakers, not dress shoes, with kind of a dressier outfit. Um, He also had brown hair, was about 185 pounds, and one of the witnesses thinks he had glasses on, and another witness says he didn't, so they're not totally sure, but he might have had glasses. Um, While one student stayed with Betsy, the other student tried to follow the man out of the library, but 
um, this man outran the student, so they never caught up with him. Um, but like I said, he was running toward the recreation hall whenever the student stopped chasing him. The sneakers kind of makes me think of like in New York City when like the business mm-hmm. people who walk a lot. So he could be, it could be someone that like wore sneakers because they knew they were going to stab someone and run away, but they might walk a lot on campus. That's true mm-hmm. too. I mean, yeah. it's a big campus. So, you know, it, I wouldn't want to wear dress shoes all around the campus. I would absolutely put sneakers on. That's a good point. This episode of Keystone Cold Cases is sponsored in part by Coco Counseling Center in Hershey, PA, two blocks off of Chocolate Ave. Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. In the mid-1980s, one Texas city was gripped in fear. One by one, women were disappearing. They were eventually found, but not the way anyone wanted. From the pages of the reporter's notebook comes an in-depth look at an extraordinary era of fear. We focus on seven cold cases among a long string of murders, and we think we know who the killer was. You'll hear from some of the victims' families and friends and people who work these cases, along with a Pennsylvania expert in the behaviors of serial killers. Unfortunately, with serial killing, the more killing that you see, the more clues that you get at the expense of human life. More than 35 years later, the families are still waiting for proof, still waiting for justice, still waiting for peace. Search for Still from the Reporter's Notebook wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I did find a really good article in the Penn Stater magazine, and we have it linked in the blog with some additional information. It was a really, really good read. Um, I think it's part of a series, but I couldn't find any other parts of it. Um, But it was really interesting to read, really well written. Um, Apparently, one of the students claimed that there were two men who actually ran up and took a student back to where Betsy was laying. And then once a student saw Betsy, that's when these two guys ran away. Um, Nobody else saw two guys. So this student that these two guys supposedly took back toward Betsy was also very traumatized by it. And they're thinking that her reaction and memory may have been altered by the trauma. So she may have just misremembered there being more people than there were or mixed a memory with something else because trauma can do that. But she's saying that two men led her back to Betsy. Yeah. 
That's very specific. Yeah. And according to everybody else, that didn't happen. The rest of it absolutely did, but nobody else saw two guys taking this girl back to Betsy's body. It makes me think how you said some people said that they had glasses and some people didn't. And the way they're dressed, do you think that maybe they were in like... What are, I didn't go to a regular college, so what are the Greek people? Like in a fraternity? <laughs> yeah. Like... <laughs> Have you seen movies, Amanda? <laughs> I'm just saying, like, <laughs> like they're having a business wear party instead of a toga party. No, but like, don't some of them like dress up like and wear like sports boys. jackets and stuff? So, like, that's fair. Yeah, maybe one of them wore glasses and one of them didn't, and there really were two. But like, would it be an initiation to murder someone? That's like taking Jesus Christ. That's taking initiation, or what do they call it? <laughs> to a whole new yeah. level. Yeah. Rushing initiation. Yeah, that thing. Um, My school also did not have Greek life, but I've turned on a television twice, so. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you, like, play Edward Forty Hands or something for (laughs) hazing instead of (laughs) stabbing someone, but I've... I've never been a part of Greek life. Wasn't it also <laughs> at a Penn State rush party that the kid died from alcohol poisoning? Yeah. A couple years ago? So, I mean... I, I know I I've know. seen other um, like crime shows and stuff where someone was murdered because of yeah. their initiation stuff. So, I mean, it's possible. Yeah. Did you see that on Cold Justice? No, it wasn't. <laughs> Jerk. If you haven't watched it yet, watch it. I'm not watching it just simply to spite you. More witnesses, like I said, were able to corroborate the idea that it was one person that ran straight out, but maybe there were two and they took two different directions. Um, I mean, there could be something to that idea. Everyone seemed to agree on the attire and the rest of his description, though, including like height, hair, um down to you know like the same type of clothing so i'm thinking it was just one person apparently there was also a standard at the library as well that you go through a bag check on the way out and this person who ran out disrupted that because obviously they didn't stop and say here look in my sleeve i have a knife and just killed someone so that drew even more attention to him Um, and so more people saw him and were able to then describe him and kind of add to that theory that it was just one person and not two. While Betsy was laying between fallen books between shelves 50 and 51, fighting to survive, a call went into the university health center and the call said that a girl had fainted in the library. So this girl got stabbed in the chest and fell on the floor, and they called it in as someone having fainted, which at first I thought was a little weird, but apparently um, she was wearing a red dress, like a dark red dress with a white turtleneck underneath it. So I'm picturing kind of like a turtleneck and a jumper type of thing, and maybe like a thick sweater and a corduroy, so there was more material there, and it was red in color. So they couldn't really see much blood 
And apparently she had urinated in that spot in the library, just, I guess, as a shock reaction. And so they saw that and just assumed it was someone fainting, all of their muscles relaxing, and that that's what happened. Um, A little bit later on, when they got to the... I don't know if it was when they got to the health center or what, but someone saw more blood pooling and they realized like, oh, she didn't just faint. There's something else going on. And that's when they realized that she had been stabbed and she was pronounced dead at 5.19 p.m. So she was stabbed, um, they believe, somewhere between 4.50 and 4.55. And then she died. She was pronounced dead at 519. I keep forgetting that this was almost like the middle of the day cuz I imagine it being like dark and late outside right. when these people or this person goes like running away, but it's like not even dinner time. It's like old people dinner time. It is November it, though, so it is yeah. getting dark by that time. I mean it's it's late November. Yeah, I guess yeah. I mean still it's not pitch black out at 5 o'clock. It's getting there but right. um this whole thing just seems so absolutely wild to me because i mean grace like you were just saying the time of day throws me off when i kind of come back to reality and realize when it was and just how quickly it happened it almost to me feels like a coincidence that this knife hit the right spot Either that or it has to be someone who's trained to get just the right angle to get it through the breastplate and through the pulmonary artery and the aorta that it went through. Like, it just seems like it was kind of a lucky shot or an unlucky shot. And that's something that um, the Murder Squad released an episode on this just a couple days ago before we're recording. And that's something that Paul Holes even mentioned. Um, Cause I think Billy had asked Billy Jensen and Paul Holes host the podcast. And I think Billy had asked, you know, does it mean that someone knew how to do this? And Paul said, honestly, you'd really, really have to know if you were aiming to hit both of those. Um, but Paul's also mm-hmm. never killed anybody. He has worked in the field for a very long time though. So I, I don't know. I kind of think it might just be a freak thing that they happen to hit the right spot. Um, um, It just, it seems so crazy to me that, I mean, so many people saw this guy run through the library, but he's never been caught. So two things. To me, it sounds like it was kind of like underneath the armpit through. And at that point, like, you would have to have your arms up. So like, was she up? reading a book or if the guy was using his right hand was he facing her when he stabbed her like was there something going on so the thought is that whoever approached her and did this approached her from the front uh there are a couple people that believe that she was just kind of attacked from the back um so i don't know if it was low enough that if her arm was just reaching for a book or reaching for something that her arms were up and they just, you know, got her in just the right spot. Um, I mean, it was definitely on the side. It was toward the side. It would have to be. 
So to do it from behind, and you said he was covering his right hand, obviously because it probably had blood on it, you would right. have to stab backwards as like you were walking away from him to hit her in the left side. Well, or rotate the knife in your hand before you run. True. Possibly. Um, and then secondly, I looked up, you can actually Google the sunset time for dates and in state college on that. Of course you did. Right? <laughs> state, state college on that day, the sunset at 445. Okay. Huh. So if that gives you a little bit more of a. Yeah. So it was getting dark. Yeah. That's fair. Still wasn't like the dead of night, though. So that's. Still kind of crazy. Dead of night, maybe not the best phrase. <laughs> but um. Anyway, well, didn't we say that she was wearing like a thick sweater mm -hmm. or something? So, like, I don't know. That seems like it would make it even more difficult to navigate exactly what you're hitting, right? And like, your ribs are there, and so like, and this knife isn't very big. If you're saying like three inches long. I mean, maybe it was a bigger knife and it only got, like, they only partially put the knife in, but they were able, it was small enough that it was not visible as they ran away. That clearly they were, you know, covering their right hand and arm, but I'm thinking if I'm carrying, like, a chef's knife, I can't conceal that against my, like, you're going to be able to see it. So, yeah. so, I don't. So you have a small knife. This girl in like a thick sweater. That's what I'm thinking. And you're trying to do it quickly and be like very precise. I mean, if we're thinking that he knew exactly what he was doing. Um like I don't see I don't and that's know. that's why I'm thinking it's one of those just freak chance things. Um that maybe wasn't meant to kill, wasn't I mean, we'll get into theories, obviously, but there's a theory involving someone that just had irrational anger and maybe they just got really mad and went huh, and and then ran away. That, that seems even more well, bizarre to me. Immediate regret, though. In the library with the pocket knife. Wait till you hear the theories. It it makes a little bit more sense oh, with some background. <laughs> so. The autopsy revealed, see, now this says that she was stabbed through the breastplate. So that makes me think it was, see, this is, I have conflicting stories now and I didn't realize it till we were here and recording. Yeah, that would be like in the front, I would think. Yeah. Didn't you say the breastplate um, earlier? Isn't that what you said? Did I? Maybe I did. You you did, but like, to me, it makes it me just think seems like... Like, I, for some reason, feel like it's in the side, and I know that's not right, but it... Well, and that would make sense if some theories are saying she was attacked from the front and some are saying from the back. I mean, if she was through the front, then there would be a cut on the front of her body, and you wouldn't be able to argue that she was attacked from the back. You know what I mean? It, would... it says from the left side of the breastplate. Is what you had said. Okay. Which could still be, which would make more sense if it was from behind, because you right. would just like bear hug and like drive it into her chest. I kind of wish we were recording video for this because of the way we're just like rotating our bodies and touching like our ribs and it's funny. Well, it's just you, but <laughs> <laughs> Amanda did it too. 
<laughs> I still have a really hard time with this little knife and all this clothing and I know. ribs and everything. Like I'm just really that's the size of the pocket knife in relation to the hole in her chest. Right. Well, we don't necessarily know what we the don't knife. know for sure. We don't know but how that that's like. No, we just know that the cut was one inch by three inches. So the autopsy did reveal, like I said, that she was stabbed, um, we'll say near the breastplate instead of through the breastplate, um, and died within five minutes. But the autopsy tech actually said it was likely that she was dead within a minute, um, not just five minutes. Just a comment on whether she was attacked from the front or from behind. I just imagine it as like behind because you would, I feel like you would just have a little bit more control about instead of like jumping out in front of her and having like a split second to do whatever you're going to do before she reacts, you know, like, right. And I, I don't know. I also think about your stance. If you are in the library and you're looking for a resource it would be much easier to attack someone from behind mm-hmm. because they're focused on something. So if something moves in their peripheral vision, they're going to see something coming towards them. They won't see something from behind their head. Yeah. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. That makes sense too. Um, I think of it more of like she was meeting someone she shouldn't have. And like he stabbed her when they were like hugging kind of thing. Like, I don't... I thought of that, too, that maybe she was meeting someone. Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely potential for that. Um, That theory has not come up in anything I've read, but that makes sense to me. Um, So, one of the big things that people typically comment on or question about this is, why didn't she scream? Like, you know, in every movie, someone gets stabbed, and they scream when they get stabbed. So... She literally died by internally drowning in her own blood. Um, The way that it cut, she would not have been able to scream because she, her lungs were filling with blood. Didn't we have this discussion on like a super early episode about people Mm -hmm. not screaming when they get stabbed? Yeah, it was um, because of adrenaline. Yeah, it was the Terry Bowers case. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but um, that's why they say that she likely did not scream. Um, and this is also why there was not much visible blood, because most of it remained inside of her as she was just kind Ugh. of drowning internally. Um, the good news is it didn't appear as if there was any form of sexual assault. So trying to find positives at least she didn't suffer like for three hours i don't know well she was dressed and it was the middle of the day so it's not like they were do you think that that's why the cart was (laughs) fell over no i just meant that like she died within a minute she wasn't bleeding out for like an hour yeah. It was just a poorly timed comment because my brain is not functioning after a week of in-service. So she was buried in early December. I believe it was December 3rd near her hometown with a rose from David in her hands. And she had actually written him a letter 
the morning that she went to the library when she had gotten back home. She wrote him a letter the next day and had put it in the mail and it arrived to him the day after she died. Oh God, that's so sad. Which is heartbreaking and kind of creepy. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Um, I just remembered he's in med school. Yeah. And would know where to stab somebody. So that comes up. Okay. Sarah's like, shut we will, up. No, no, no. There. No, we will come to that. Um, that is a, a theory like, oh. that existed. Yeah. Wait so, a second. <laughs> this leads us into the investigation. Uh, Pennsylvania State Police pulled together a team of about 35 troopers. And when they started investigating, they figured out that there were over 200 students that had been in the library that day and roughly 90 students who would have been in the library between 4 and 5 p.m. that day. All of them were questioned and ruled out. According to Wikipedia, the entire campus was searched for the weapon, but it wasn't found. However, like I said before, the Penn Stater article mentioned that a knife had been found in the bushes near the recreation hall and was turned into police, but that nothing ended up coming of that. Was this like a humongous library? Because 90 is a lot of people to go through there in that hour. And just also when I was imagining this happening in the middle of the night, I imagine they were like the only two people in the library besides like the librarian on, on another floor. <laughs> like that's a lot of people. Right. So um, I know at least at my college and it sounds like Penn State was kind of set up like this, too, based on some of the interviews that I watched and read. Um Obviously, like students have jobs in the library and on different places on campus. And I know at my undergrad college, if we were working and wanted to stay, they would pay us extra to work during like a break because all of the international students would be staying. Um, a lot of students that just had, you know, like multiple states between them and home. Um, I graduated with a couple people that were from like Washington, Oregon, California. So if it was a three day weekend, they weren't going to make the trip all the way back West just to come back to Pennsylvania less than a week later. So they still needed people to work. So there were definitely still students on campus. Um, and for as big of a school as Penn state is, and the fact that that was the main research hub like, that's where a lot of the art, the language, whether it be English or foreign language, um, probably a lot of the like social sciences would be in that same area. So pretty much any research that you would need to do would probably be found right in that area. So I don't the 90 didn't really surprise me as much. Um well, I feel like the surprise is that no one saw anything. Right. <laughs> like, unless they were all in their, like, separate corners, I just imagine, how did no one see it? And some people might have just been a quick, like, in and out to return something or... That's true. To, to yeah. double check a source or 
they wanted to go to the third floor and accidentally went to the second. So they did a lap around and went up. I, you know, I'm, there's a bunch of scenarios, but um, it does seem like a lot for no one to have seen it actually happen. But yeah, for sure. Apparently, it's a really like dark area. The ceilings are all really low. It's it just has a creepy vibe, and a lot of people don't go and stay there for very long. So, I mean, even Betsy was just down there to grab the resource she needed. Like she had set up shop on the floor above. So, I don't mm-hmm. know. Okay. Um, maybe get better lighting. It's a right? library, <laughs> right? Well, now it's... People are going to strain their eyes. Obviously, yeah, now I'm it's sure a lot it's better. Much better now. <laughs> um, but it was 1969, so... Um, yeah. A $25,000 reward was offered for any information that could be offered for this case. Um, at this time, that reward has not been claimed because no pertinent new information has really come in. There were some composite drawings made based on the description that I gave before. Uh, only one of them was published, and it was one of those identikit sketches. And I think we talked about them a couple weeks ago where it's just like pick a mouth that looked like that person, and they just put all the layers on a face. Um, and we have that picture. So for you guys, it's on page nine of the document. And it looks like his eyes are closed, but I can't tell if it's that his eyes are closed or if it's been like photocopied so many times that the eyes oh, were just it's lighter. Creepy. It's super creepy. It is really creepy, but um like this man doesn't have pupils. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, when I looked he at it, it's pretty easy to find. Most people have pupils. <laughs> <laughs> Most people have their eyes open when they walk. If you see someone walking around with their eyes totally closed, (laughs) question them. So, unfortunately, the crime scene was not preserved. Uh, Because they thought that she fainted, they were given the all clear to just clean everything up. So they put the books on the shelves. They straightened things up. um, There was a little bit of blood on the floor. They cleaned it up. And they cleaned up the urine. So they couldn't test anything. Um, Now, there was some blood that they found, some small blood droplets on the way to the stairs to the third floor. Remember, she was on the second floor. Um, And there was also apparently some blood near a light switch. They were able to type the blood, and it was the same type. Um, But late 60s, early 70s, blood typing was A, B, or O. I mean that's yeah she would have the same blood type as probably 40 or 50 percent of the students on campus so anybody could have gotten a paper cut and touched a light switch it doesn't mean that it's her blood um so originally they thought that maybe that would help uh it did not end up helping them at all so on one of the anniversaries of her death, I found a couple conflicting reports. One said it was 1984, and some others said that it was 2013. Those dates are not close. I don't know how there are different dates rolling around, but apparently the same thing happened both years, or someone has timing wrong. Um, but someone had created a shrine to Betsy in aisle 51. 
There was a candle on the floor, and in quotation marks, it said, R.I.P. Betsy Ardsma, born July 11th, 1947, died November 28th, 1969. And then it also said, P.S., I'm back. And it was written in red. Five years later, another shrine appeared that was very similar. Law enforcement said that both of these were pranks. They were just determined to have been people pranking. Um, that I could see as being some sort of like rush initiation thing. Like there's a haunted library and you need to go say that you're back for the girl. Like I could see that being some part of rush or something to get into a frat house or sorority. But that's a horrible thing to do. Yeah. Find a better prank. Jesus. Right. <laughs> Um, police do believe that she likely knew her attacker because she didn't scream or make any noise, even any like noise of just being startled. Um, like anytime I see someone, <laughs> my husband and I almost both punched each other in the face the other day because I thought he was still sleeping and he thought I was in my office and we both <laughs> walked around the same corner towards each other and we both <laughs> thought that somebody else was in the house. So we just almost decked each other. So, like, if somebody snuck up on me in a library, I would make some sort of, like, oh, my gosh. Or, you know, like, when I bump into inanimate objects and I apologize to them. Like, it seems like it would have been someone that she knew based on this logic because she didn't make any sort of noise. Either that or it was that fast. Um, they did consider the idea that she may have been stalked. But this didn't really fall in line with stalking because nobody even knew that she would be at campus because she was expected to be with her boyfriend for olive break. Um, now, like her roommate knew that she was back on campus. Obviously, her boyfriend knew. Um, and her professor that she was going to meet up with knew. Um, so if someone is stalking her, they may have been able to do a really good job. But also stalking in 1969 was very different than now because you couldn't find people's locations from their iPhone or see where they uploaded from social media or get in touch with them every waking moment of every day or watch their Snapchat or anything like that. So I don't know. It's possible. It was eventually ruled out. Um, but there was kind of that theory that went around for a bit that she was stalked um speaking of her boyfriend i know we touched on this earlier um he was looked at as a suspect you always start closest work your way out he was ruled out um because he was confirmed to have been in a study group in hershey that night and everyone could provide an alibi for him and apparently it was more than just like friends it was in a location that other people saw them and you know he had a he had a, a solid alibi um there was also really nothing in her personal belongings that indicated that she was upset or afraid that something bad was going to happen um she hadn't mentioned feeling suspicious of anything and even though she did want to go into the peace corps and ended up going to Pennsylvania and staying with her boyfriend, she didn't really seem 
to, you know, hold that against him at all. Um, like I said, they had been talking about getting engaged and starting a life together. And, um, it, it didn't seem like he was a, a viable suspect in that it would have been a major stretch. Um, there was also a thought as well that perhaps she had seen a drug deal go down in the library um, or that she had some drug debts or something and either she was killed so she would stay quiet about what she saw or she was killed because she didn't pay for drugs or something. But um, she hardly ever smoked, barely ever drank. Nobody knew of any drug activity that she had ever taken part in. So it would be weird for her to have enough drug debt that someone would kill her over. Um, so that kind of got tossed out as well. Now, there is a theory that kind of goes in line with the drug theory, but just different activities that maybe she had walked in on someone doing something sexual, whether it was masturbation. Uh, there's a thought that it was gay sex. Um, they think that she saw something and whoever she saw wanted her to stay quiet. So they murdered her to ensure the silence. Um, yeah. Why would you go to the library to masturbate? So I had the same thoughts. There's a lot of like giant red flags in this case, but they all have explanations. So apparently because this was a dark area that people didn't venture to too often i guess um just with 90 other people in one hour right like i guess there was a desk um somewhere that had a bunch of magazines on it uh like porn on it and um Give me a second in my notes and we'll get to uh, some other evidence that was there. But I'm sure right. you can imagine it. So just take that shit and go back to your dorm. Right. Like, get out. Of here. Um, and I mean, it, it does seem I'm with you that it seems a bit extreme that someone would be doing that in a public place and then get so mad that they would kill someone over it. Like you said, right. if you want to yeah. hide that don't do it there um i mean sex sure but but not if you're gonna kill I someone for like getting masturbating caught. in a library is funny well i'm guessing if it was like gay sex or something like that right in 69 right eh, 69 sorry <laughs> um <laughs> nice but in all seriousness, you like yourself. if you were engaging in gay <sighs> sex and someone caught you you right. could probably react pretty strongly out right. of fear. So, um, the other thing that got me is like, were they just, they're engaging in whatever. And within two seconds, they were able to pull a knife out, stab her, get dressed, run away, fully clothed. And if there was another person involved, where was that person? Right. It, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, the reason yeah. that they let this stick, like I said, is actually kind of convincing. Um, apparently, like I said, there was an area of tables or desks near the stacks that Betsy was searching in. And there was a chair slightly pulled out from the table with a half empty can of soda 
I think it was root beer. Doesn't matter. And a stack of some gay and straight porn magazines. There were also apparently about two dozen magazines scattered between the books in the aisle that Betsy was killed in. Um, and when they, I don't think they used luminol. I think they just brought in a black light. There was a lot of semen. And they were able to pull some samples and I guess they were able to date them like within the past couple of days. They did pull a partial fingerprint off the soda can, but it never matched up to anything in the database. Some people did think that she was killed by Ted Bundy because he was at Temple University around that time, but police ended up ruling that out. I guess it didn't line up with what they knew about his travels during that time. Um, I guess he didn't want to make that long drive all the way from Philly to State College. It's really all about convenience when you're going for murder. Well, when you're when you're murdering across the country, you wouldn't want to drive, you know, three hours anywhere. Just a lot too of gas. Much. I know. Okay, so Wikipedia then listed out three suspects. Um, so we're going to start with those three, and then there's kind of a couple other theories and suspects that get thrown around as well. Um, not 100% sure where all of these come from, but we'll go ahead and dive in. Uh, the first one is William Spencer. He was in his 40s and had recently moved back to PA from Boston, and he had obtained a job teaching art at Penn State while his wife was studying there for her PhD. So apparently he confessed to having killed Betsy while he was at a faculty party he attended. Um, I'm assuming some drinks were flowing and I'm going to quote what he said. And I know that some people do not like this language, but it's important for something that comes up later. So bear with me. Um, he is quoted to have said at the party, it would be so easy to have killed that cunt. He what? Yeah, that's not even drunk party conversation. No, uh, no. And and I'm not mentally well, and that's still not like drunk party conversation. So you've got to be really unwell for that to be your standard. Go-to. Yeah, I say some fucked up stuff when I'm drunk. That's but that's nope. Right, right. Um, so he claimed that he and Betsy were actually friends and that she had posed nude for him for a sculpture because he made sculptures all the time. Um, he was actually in the library on the same floor at the time of the attack, which is suspicious. And like I said, he was in the library on that same floor it, within that same hour. Um, and he had apparently seen the attacker and described the attacker as wearing an overcoat. Now, to me, that brings to mind a trench coat which just makes me think of, like, flashers. So I'm thinking he just made that up, thinking that if someone was having some fun with some magazines, they must have been a flasher in an overcoat. Um, because everything that he said was then dismissed. They didn't take anything with credit. Um, he hadn't lived... Okay, but did they do anything to, like, reprimand this guy for <laughs> talking in faculty parties about killing a student? No. Did they find a sculpture of her naked? No. 
Not that I know of. Yeah, so basically they figured out that he was lying about everything he had initially told police. Obviously, he didn't tell police uh, that he had killed her, but they determined everything else that he told them was incorrect. Um, And there was no proof that she had ever posed nude for him. Uh, He had also only been in Pennsylvania for a couple of weeks, and she had only been in Pennsylvania for a couple of weeks. So it doesn't seem like they would have built up this really close relationship that he claimed they had. So you just moved here. You just got this job and you're hanging out with your new coworkers. And that's what you choose to talk about that. You killed this student. Like, are you trying to be cool? Are you trying to get in the in crowd? Well, yeah, that was the in thing in the 70s. You know, I mean, true. What brings that up? And what cunt was he talking about? Like, did he specifically with was there a conversation about her that brought this up or like? No, but apparently it was fairly shortly after it. And within the context, they were talking about her. Um, I don't know. And it's all word of mouth coming from the seven, early 70s. So maybe he never even said it, but um, that's just kind of how the story came out. Um, there also, and the reason that I used that language in the quote earlier, was a letter mailed to the um, PSP in 1977. And part of the letter said, quote, You never did catch the guy who killed that cunt in the library back in 70 or 71, did you? Well, fuck you all. Here's a present for Washington's birthday you'll never forget. End quote. So, there's a couple things there. But that's like, not even the right year, not even the right time frame. Nope. Why do I feel like she turned him down for this nude sculpting gig, and he just said it to be a dick? Potentially. Um, and it was postmarked from Atlanta and I don't know where this dude was at the time, but I'm pretty sure he continued to teach for Penn state for a long time. So why would something come postmarked from Atlanta from him? Um, and then it was also dusted for fingerprints, but nothing was ever revealed. Um, it is weird that it's referring to her with the same term. And that's not a, I mean, I guess now it's kind of becoming more common. Either that or one of my best friends hates the word, so a lot of other people use the word around her just because it bothers her, because my friends are jerks, but so am I. So maybe I have a bias in the fact that I do hear it a lot. Um, But late 60s, early 70s, that wasn't a normal part of American speech. Very English, but it has a different meaning. Like, it's not as derogatory in England as it is in America or like in Australia. I mean, it's, it's a lot more common. It's like every other word in Australia. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. The C word. Oh yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Crikey. Different C word, word, but yeah. (laughs) So yeah, it, it was weird, but the years are off. So if you're responsible for something or you're trying to intimidate someone about something you're going to be off by a year or two that just doesn't seem to line up so um nothing more ever really came from him but 
that sounds like a prank, like those shitty pranks that shitty people play where they act like they had something to do with it or they know something, but really they're just a dick. Yeah. So the next suspect that was listed on um, Wikipedia and Wikipedia was the only place I could find this person's name was Larry Maurer. I'm assuming that's how you say it, it was M-A-U-E-R. Uh, he and Betsy were friends and had gone out for coffee together a couple of times, but his description did never match what they described this fleeing man to look like. And he was really quickly ruled out. I don't know if Wikipedia put him on there just because they looked at him at one point because he was a friend of Betsy's, but I threw it in there because it was on Wikipedia. And I always listen to my BFF. So the next one here, this is the last one that was on Wikipedia. And this is a pretty popular um, thought that this person is involved um, is Richard Hefner. Um, This one gets a little bit meatier. So Richard is a professor at Penn State, but not now, but he was. Um, But in 1969, he was a 25-year-old geology student at, yep, you guessed it, Penn State main campus. Apparently, he was a socially awkward student who was known to force female platonic relationships to cover up his own homosexual desires. Um, And I guess it was one of those things where he kind of made it look like he was pursuing women, but he was so weird and I can't tell if he was trying to drive women away or if he was just a little quirky uh, but once he even drove out of state um, it was up somewhere into new england i think in massachusetts to go to the door of a woman that he barely knew knock on the door profess his undying love for her and she responded by slamming the door in his face which same so i mean good on her but that's a little bit of insight into how this man treated friendships or desires with women he and betsy lived across the courtyard from one another so they were both i guess in atherton hall or i don't know if there's another dorm that's right there um but they were just across a courtyard from each other so they would see each other a lot um and i guess they became acquainted but she um some sources say that she just didn't want to be friends with him she got a weird vibe others said that they went on a couple dates and it was getting a little bit more serious and she was like no like i'm dating someone seriously but she was already dating someone seriously so it doesn't make sense to me that she would go on dates with this other guy um but But she went for coffee with the other one so yeah but i used to meet up with been at the coffee shop on campus all the time because it was a convenient place to go and there was never any interest one way or the other so i mean i don't see that as as weird if you're calling it coffee rather than calling it like going on dates so um he was known for having erratic behavior and explosive anger And he had stolen several gems from the university's collection um, since he was always near them studying geology. Um, His day-to-day appearance did match that of the fleeing man. Um, He was typically 
fairly well dressed. Um, he said that his alibi is that he was sitting at the student union hall eating an evening meal when he heard rumors begin to circulate about a student having been murdered in the library. He claimed that he had never even used that library as all of the geology research, which is what he would have been using, was located in a different library. Um, I mean, I went to a tiny college, like I've said, and the idea of having like 7,000 libraries is crazy to me, but I mean, Penn State's huge, so I guess it makes sense. Um, now, of uh, one of the composite sketches that was not released to the public, apparently resembles Hefner, but it wasn't released to the public, so I couldn't find it. Um, so we were never able to really line it up one way or the other. Uh, for the next two years of his studies at Penn State, he did study almost exclusively off campus, which normally he was always on campus. So there's definitely some sketch in there. Um, now, when it comes to a suspect, usually all we have is here's what they said they were doing at the time. Here's how it lines up. Um, we don't typically get more information later on or not all the time. Um, in 1975, Hefner had graduated. He was working at his family's rock shop. So it's apparently a family of geologists. Um, and he allegedly molested two young boys. He was then obviously accused of pedophilia. He had also apparently hired two older boys to intimidate the younger boys into removing the charges. Um, against the wishes of the judge, he also took and passed a polygraph. And then because of the polygraph, it got that idea of... Um, possible innocence in the mind of the jurors and he was tried twice and in both there were hung juries so he was never convicted and the record was later expunged um but there was also a story of him taking a boy scout to the location where betsy was killed having the boy stand where betsy was killed and then telling this boy a girl i used to date died here what? Because that's normal. Who does that? Um, Hefner. Richard Hefner, apparently. So then a year later in 1976, a friend of Hefner's came forward with a story. She said that she had burst into their home um, around 6 p.m. on November 28th, so the day that she was murdered. Um, and I want to clarify, it was her home that she lived in with other people. He did not live there. Um, she described it as our home. And I just realized that's kind of confusing. So he burst into somebody else's home that he was friends with. And he blurted out, have you heard a girl I dated was murdered in the library? But that doesn't line up with his recollection of events based on the timeline. And... Um, it also wasn't, like, in the papers or officially revealed until the next day. So that's definitely sketchy, too. Um, I mean, word of mouth travels quickly, and I get that, but um, I don't think I'd be walking into houses and yelling, you know, oh, a guy I dated was killed. Like, I'd be, I don't know, disassociating or something? I mean... um. It's interesting that he said he was eating 
when he heard the rumor that someone died in the library. But they all thought she fainted or had a seizure or something, so... Well, I mean, she was, she was still on campus when she was pronounced dead at 519. So, I mean, it's possible that he was eating dinner at, like, 530 and... Or was at least near the mess hall or whatever at 530 and... I don't know. I agree. It seems weird. Um, And like I said, they found out that, like, his story didn't line up with what other people were saying, so... um, He died in 2002 due to a tear in his aorta, which bled into his lungs, which is ironically a very similar death to what Betsy suffered. He had somehow gotten a tear in the aorta. They don't think it was injury related. Um, From what I could find, it was just like genetic or something. And um, he was in the hospital and he went into the bathroom and... It must have just torn the rest of the way, and he was found on the bathroom floor. So that Yikes. just seems like Happened. karma if it was him that killed her. Um, in 2009, so seven years after he died, even more evidence came out against him from a younger family member. I think it was his nephew or great-nephew um, who stated that in 1975, this nephew overheard a conversation between Hefner and Hefner's mom after those molestation allegations came out. Um, and I guess at some point, his mom indicated that she thought he had killed a girl at Penn State. And his mom had mentioned something about, like, everything that she did to help him out the last time. Um, It wasn't a direct confession, but this conversation that this nephew overheard definitely seems to imply that Hefner had confessed to his mother or very heavily hinted to his mother um, that he had killed Betsy and that she helped to cover it up somehow. Um, but none of it was ever 100% confirmed. Um, and like I said before, everything is he said, she said, so we don't know for sure. But it's definitely sketchy. Um, now, another website, uh, medium.com, again, full link is available on our blog, has an article by a woman named Brianna Bennett, or Brianna, sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, um, and she offers another theory. She suggests the idea that it was actually David who killed Betsy, like Amanda suggested earlier. Um, Honestly, the article's really short. She doesn't give a lot of details, um, so I'm not 100% sure why her suspicion was aroused. But uh, she does say that Hefner was studying geology and David was studying medicine. So David would be the one to know how and where to stab someone just the right way. Um, But again, he was ruled out for being at that study group in Hershey. So um, interesting thought, but I also don't know how many pre-med students would say, oh, yeah, I could totally go murder someone with one stab. I mean, I don't know. That's a weird question to ask someone, so I didn't ask anyone that I know that's medical, but... I don't know. Um, Another theory comes from Sasha Skuchek. Um, He was a student who attended Penn State 
I think it was shortly after the time of Betsy's murder. Um, he believes that she was stabbed from behind. Um, the article I found that discussed it did a really good job of explaining what happened to Betsy, but it didn't go that far into the um, reasoning or logic behind being stabbed from behind rather than from the front. Um, so I'm not entirely sure. I don't know if it's just kind of like what we discussed earlier where we said maybe she was, you know, getting something and had her back turned to someone. So they just took the opportunity or if there's some other logic, but I couldn't find it in that article. Now, if there is any good to come out of this, it was a complete restructuring and an increased hiring of security across Penn State's campus and actually across all of their campuses. Um, so satellites that were and were not there at the time, um, everything has been revamped majorly. So not only does her story live through the cold case, there have also been accounts of perhaps her spirit or her soul lingering at Penn State until her case is solved. That's right. It's a spooky cold case. So, honestly, there really aren't too many legitimate substantiated sightings. Um, we did actually get this case suggestion through the website from Sarah, not me. I did not suggest it to myself. Um, and Sarah, even though you spell your name without an H, we did accept it. It's okay. Um, <laughs> so she suggested it. And then Amanda was talking to someone who said they knew of um, some hauntings in the library. So... I kind of looked into some of the stories, and there's really not too many that are, like I said, legitimate. Um, a lot of people have claimed to have seen a female figure floating in the stacks right in the area where she was killed. Um, some people claim to have seen blood just kind of appear or they hear screams. Um, that just sounds like lore that's gotten passed down. Um, I mean, there wasn't that much blood. Why would there be screams? Um, because she didn't scream. Right, exactly. Which is why it fits more with Fair. just being some kind of lore. Um, there wasn't really that much blood. She didn't scream. So why would those be two things that are associated with her spirit if her spirit is causing these things to happen? Um, honestly, there was probably more urine than blood on the floor. But that's not as... That's not as creepy. I mean, it would be pretty creepy if puddles of urine just started appearing random places. Or you have a dog. Dear God. One of those two things. So, um, there have actually been people that have gone to the library to investigate the paranormal there, but, like, literally none of them have ever found results. There is a club on campus, um, and... I think there were five seasons on A&E of the show Paranormal State, um, and that's this club. It's the Paranormal Research Society, I think. I have it in my notes a little bit later. Um, but it was formed, and, you know, they went around kind of hunting ghosts and doing what they could do, and um, they had lots of teams that would go in there all the time. Nobody ever found anything. Um, there was a 
story once of a student that said she thought she felt hands around her neck, um, but no more was ever told or documented. So I, I don't know. Um, overall, the library does really just have an eerie feel to it, though. And seriously, guys, look at the pictures on the blog because it's creepy. Um, there have been a couple other ghost sightings on campus, though. And since we have a little bit of time here, I'm going to dive in a little bit. So there is one ghost that is said to haunt the Atherton building um, or another building that is nearby the Atherton building. And it's said to be the wife of Mr. Atherton himself. Um, he is one of the former presidents of the college and his name is like all over state college. So pretty important dude. Um, now, the Atherton building is a dormitory building, and this is, like I mentioned before, where Betsy was living when she died. Um, the hauntings are said to be doors opening and closing and an apparition of a woman looking over the grounds from a top window. Um, now, in the same building, there's also supposedly the spirit of a former like house mother who had squeaky shoes. And apparently the sounds of her shoes squeaking can still be heard in the halls as if she's pacing just to make sure that everyone is home and in their rooms at night. And this ghost has come to be called gum shoes because her shoes are sticky and make noise, I guess. So um, that's the Atherton building. And then in the Schwab Art Auditorium, uh, there's supposedly a ghost known affectionately as Schwabo, which I think is a fantastic name. And the belief is that he was a janitor at the school and he still roams around opening and closing doors, relocating items within the theater, making scratching noises on the floor and walking heavily, which leads to the sound of a lot of like really heavy footprints. Footsteps. You don't hear footprints. You hear footsteps. Um, there's also stories of a woman who identified herself as Marilyn that was present during a few investigations that the Paranormal Research Society held. Apparently, Marilyn would only make herself known if it was an all-female investigative crew. If there were any males, she never spoke or, you know, did knocks or whatever they were doing to test. Um, so, um, yeah, there was this Marilyn and Schwabo in the auditorium. So this actually kind of reminds me, we had a similar ghost story at my high school. Um, there was a student who was involved in theater. I think his name was Andrew. Um, I actually called my brother earlier to double check and he said he thinks it's Andrew too. So that's what we're going with. Um, and he was involved in theater in some way, shape or form, uh, but he died young and he had had some less than awesome interactions with one of the directors for the plays and musicals. Um, this guy had, <coughs> excuse me, this guy didn't get the roles he wanted or just was butting heads a lot with this director. Um, so I forget exactly what happened, but they did not get along. So apparently the ghost would do things just to irritate this director. Whose name is Lee. Um, now I was really active in our theater um, club or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. In theater productions in high school. 
and I was involved in music and a lot of that happened in the auditorium. So I spent a lot of time there. Um, and sometimes it felt totally normal and sometimes it was kind of creepy. Um, we had those seats that you have to sit in to keep them down. Like they really don't stay down on their own. Um, and the auditorium was fairly new at this time too. So none of them had really busted or gotten worn down or anything. And we would just hear the noise. Like when you would stand up from one of the chairs, you would hear it spring up and then it would just kind of rattle a little bit until it settled down. Uh, we would hear that all the time from areas where nobody was. And um, there was one rehearsal or I correct myself. It was not a rehearsal. Lee was in the auditorium working on something, probably like stage crew building something or whatever for one of the productions. And he heard a chair go down and then flap back up. And he looked out in the auditorium and no one was there. And he was like, okay, whatever. I'm hearing things. And then it did it again. And so he walked away again from what he was doing, looked out, made sure nobody was there. And this is like probably nine, 10 o'clock at night. And then it happens a third time. And Lee yells out through the auditorium, Andrew, I've had enough. And Lee heard something and I didn't get in touch with him. Um, but he's told the story and I remember him saying he heard something like leave or get out. And so whatever tools Lee had, he put them down and he left. And ever since that, nothing has ever happened again in the auditorium that we know of at least. So that's just kind of my random ghost story. Um, other things would happen like lights would dance around and move, but technology gets finicky and, you know, you can always kind of explain those away. But anyway, so back to Penn State. Sorry. Another haunting that takes place on campus is that of Dormitory Runkle Hall. Um, a member of PRS, the Paranormal Research Society Club at Penn State was interviewed and said, quote, Runkle was one of the biggest things. There was somebody that had a Ouija board in there. And it's in one room, room 318. There've, there's been claims of 11 malevolent spirits in this single room. It has poltergeist-like activity, which is essentially aggressive, haunting, noisy ghosts. Unquote. So that's kind of creepy, but also this is why you don't use Ouija boards. Um, various other rooms and dormitories have had some minor experiences of like closet doors opening and closing and feeling cold air. Um, but in an old building on an old campus in the middle of really hilly farmland and middle of nowhere PA, um, most of that would be explainable. So I don't know. Um, whether or not these ghost tales are true, we do know that the story of Betsy Ardsma is true. She was quickly and fatefully stabbed in the chest one time on November 28th, 1969, and we know that her killer has never been captured. If you have any information at all, please reach out to Pennsylvania State Police at 717-783-5599. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. 
Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.